Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Closer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Well, there's a moopsie in my room, so I don't know how much longer I have before it drains my bones. Okay, well, we'll try and get this out of the way before you're reduced to a small puddle on the floor. This week, we are going to put the original series of Star Trek to one side, and instead, we are going to embrace the joy and wonder of Lower Decks, and we're going to be discussing Season 4. So, as we always do, we have a guest with us to cover the subject, and that means, say hello, John. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. We're, uh, <clears throat> we're only somewhat putting the original series aside, huh? Lots of uh, lots of TOS references in here, as well as uh, TNG, Voyager, everything else. Uh, well, we'll definitely be getting to this. Now, as we always do when we have a new guest on the podcast, we like to ask them um, what the history with Star Trek is. So what's your history with the show and, and what is it to you? Yeah, so uh, I'm, uh, I'm Jonathan Callan. Uh, I'm a writer uh, for uh, television, animation, games, and in many ways... Star Trek is the reason that I am those things. Um, when I was, uh, this is a little bit of a dark story, but don't don't take it dark. Uh, when my parents got divorced, <clears throat> they were fighting over me. Uh, and the way my dad sort of lured me to choosing to live with him is he told me I could stay up an extra hour to watch TNG. So that is uh, that has been my, my lifelong association with the franchise. Um, uh, that being said, I sort of, you know, watched a lot of TNG when I was a kid, then kind of left it behind for other science fiction. I was actually a big uh, Babylon 5 fan, uh, which turned me on to like 70s sci-fi and Harlan Ellison. Uh, and then people kept mentioning, mentioning this uh, city on the edge of forever thing, right? So when the original series was airing on the sci-fi channel, I went and uh, watched some of those episodes and I was just hooked for life. It has been a, a, a lifelong part of my experience ever since. Um, there were uh, uh, several years here in Los Angeles where I was involved in a 30-person uh, uh, Star Trek role-playing game. Uh, and then most recently, I worked on the uh, uh, Star Trek Resurgence game, uh, which came out through Bruner House. You can get it on PlayStation, Xbox, and PC. Um, and it's, you know, kind of a combination of a uh, Choice-paced, uh, telltale, morality-style gameplay, and uh, Star Trek, which I think is a, a sort of lovely chocolate-peanut-butter combination. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I think it's fair to say that of all the guests we've had in the podcast, you're probably the one who's actually closest to the series itself, especially if you wrote for Resurgence. What was that like? What was it like? Um, it was... Um... You know, it, it was it was nice. I had prepared my uh, my whole life for it, um, but also I think it was um, instructive in that uh, you know every job has its ups and downs, its its positives and negatives, um, and you spend so long inspired by one thing, striving to get to a place, and then you get there and you find out it's it's pretty much like everything else. Uh, and so you know when I think of the way Star Trek has influenced me as a writer. Um, yeah, of course, it came up on the Star Trek project. How would it not? But also, it's come up on everything I've ever written for, right? It's come up on Slug Terra and Ben 10. You know, it comes up in the, the it's sort of spiritual influence on my own writing. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of just a job, I guess, is, is what I would say. 
Okay. An, an extremely cool one, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, with an introduction like that, you know, we better have a good season of television to talk about. And thankfully, I think it's probably fair to say that we do. But um, Kev, would you care to give us a bit of a an oversight of the season, a pressy of uh, these episodes? Yeah. Um, unlike our Changing Worlds episode, we won't be going every episode of the season, but I think let's overview the season as a whole. Uh, it starts with our lower deckers being promoted to lieutenant junior grade across the first two episodes, uh, discovering new responsibilities and new roles. Uh, the Vulcan to Lynn, introduced in season two and who cameoed at the end of season three, is now fully part of the cast as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of to Lynn thoughts on this podcast. And uh, the other ongoing storyline is the disappearance of ships from many different uh, empires, societies, what have you, throughout the galaxy. And at the end of the season, it's revealed that they have been abducted. Their lower deckers have, on their respective ships, have mutinied and joined the fleet of one Nick Lorcano, who is a TNG character that has been explained to me a little bit, but I expect JJ to explain more. And uh, Nick and his fleet... Uh, Nick Lorcano is um, a legend. <laughs> they challenge um, the Starfleet, but Mariner is able to sort of outwit him and disassemble that sort of Nova Corps fleet that he assembles and to much success though with the caveat that as part of that Tendi makes a deal with her sister and has to go back to Orion at the end of the season leaving one last season cliffhanger fantastic thank you very much well I don't want to tilt our hand too much in terms of what we thought about the uh, season but I guess we can start with uh, general overthought so I mean John you're our, our guest so would you like to go first uh, how, how did you find this season uh, I, I thought it was wonderful um, I mean I really thought it was their best one yet and that's saying a lot because I really like all of the other lower deck seasons um, full disclosure I'm I'm uh, acquaintances with Mike McCann uh, oh, wow. we met Real life he's a very very cool guy um you know i've i've been following him since his days on the tng season eight twitter oh um, yeah yeah uh and uh and i've always known you know him in in my personal life to be just such a real one in terms of his relationship with star trek and you can feel that in every detail of a show like this there are so many times where even other good trek content gets little things just sort of wrong just in terms of like the the my perfect version of track the way the spirit the way the spirituality feels the aesthetics you know all of that and he's just on point every time uh you know it's a very small example but i think a good one is you know i just watched the finale a second ago and he gives us the um the the moment of uh you know uh if anybody wants to leave or not be part of this mission you know Speak out now. Like, you don't have to be a part of this because we're definitely going to face court-martial. And, you know, that's a moment that sometimes other Trek media forgets to have, right? The Admiral tells them no, the bridge crew discusses it, and they're like, ah, we're going in anyway. And I'm like, what about the rest of the ship? Like, there's hundreds of people on this ship, right? Do, do none of them get a choice? Um, and so it always feels so satisfying when you remember to have that moment and so sort of just just vaguely annoying when you don't. Yeah, it's a show with a lot of empathy for all of its characters, um, main, recurring, and what have you. And I think that's just really, that's something I always admire in any TV show or movie I watch. And it's something that I really like appreciate here for sure. Um, yeah, I loved the season. I think it is also the best yet. 
I mean, you may, if you've been tracking this podcast, you may know conspicuously we did not talk about Lower Decks Season 3 last year when this podcast was still going. Uh, and I think that's because I enjoy Seasons 1 and 2 and 3 a lot. I think they're very fun and engaging. But I think there's a point where it's like, especially with Season 3, it's like, okay, this is fun, but it's not really, it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. It's just like a good time, a good hangout with friends in this good world. I definitely think Season 4... A few episodes didn't become very obvious that they're trying something more ambitious here. They're really advancing these character arcs. They're really expanding sort of their own, putting their own mark on track instead of just being the sort of little sibling that comments on what the other shows do. Uh, and yeah, I just felt like it was a prime opportunity to finally talk about it. The same way we talk about Strange New Worlds on this podcast whenever there's new ones of that out and interrupt our sort of TOS flow. Because yeah, there is just a lot to discuss here. And yeah, it's just full of great moments, great comedy, but also a lot of heart. Uh, it's really nice to see the characters being uh, pushed into slightly un unsettling situations for them. And I think it is just such a, a great way to be able to move them forward by giving them that, that little promotion. It's almost the same thing as being an ensign, but not quite. Um, and the way that that kind of, you know, pinballs them around and, and sort of plays into their their insecurities and, and everything else. It really gives the characters that feeling that they're going somewhere, that they're not just kind of locked in aspect. And that's so important to kind of the overall arc of the season. Although we've got kind of the story of the missing ships as the as the kind of sort of B arc of the season, I suppose, the main arc of the characters being developed is what really makes this this season land. Um I loved season one and two. I thought season three was a big step down which is not a very controversial opinion um but it's wonderful to see the the show come back and and given my own personal voyager obsession it's always lovely to see any part of the star trek franchise acknowledge that it actually still exists now i know obviously um you know we have um plenty of other things around as far as Voyager is concerned at the moment. It's a surprisingly pro-Voyager time in the Star Trek universe, but but seeing it integrated into uh, into Lower Decks is just, just blissful for me. Yeah, and, and let me say on, on what Kev was saying of sort of what these early seasons look like, what this season looks like, um, I can just say from a writing perspective, I, I think the show's a real bitch. You know, it's a tough one mm -hmm. uh, because... Uh, the the pitch of it, you know, clearly at the start is to do something like Rick and Morty in the Star Trek world. And the thing about Rick and Morty that I know Mike well knows is every episode is like a different sci-fi franchise, right? Uh, Rick tells you the rules at the start of the episode, which means you can sh turn that diamond however you need to to maximize comedy and even to a lesser extent drama. Whereas we all know, you know, as much as there's uh, technobabble and, and elasticity uh, in, in uh, sort of problem setup, Star Trek theoretically has one way that the technology is supposed to work, the politics are supposed to work, you know, and it's a, and Mike cares more about that than almost any other showrunner. So finding your comedic setups within that, I think, can be challenging. And I think that when this show has flourished the most is as it grows to a show that gives itself permission to just be, you know, as much as it has comedy, be a heroic narrative like any other Star Trek show, right? That these characters have real drama that they're dealing with. 
trauma from their past, uh, heroic actions, uh, cool Star Trek moments, you know. I feel like you really feel that in this season maybe more than any of the others. Yeah, I I fully agree. I think this is the show at its max, maybe not its maximum potential, but like engaging a lot more potential and than it had before. And not that's not to slag off those first three seasons. I Like I've said, I do really enjoy them, but this really did unlock another level of, like you said, just different layers that you can put into the show where it's not just the Star Trek comedy show anymore. It's very much its own thing. I think then we should get into the format that I've sort of picked out for this, just to sort of wrangle it all together, um, which is I want to go character by character and look at our now five main Lower Deckers and I think talk about them a little bit. And I think there's no better place to start than the character who anchors our finale, um, Tendi, who is also the star of maybe my favorite episode of the season, the Orion Planet Ups and the Frankie Planet episode are very neck and neck in my mind, but let's start with uh, the Orion Planet one, because I think it gives us such great insight to Tendi being sort of the black sheep of her family and really, I think, enhancing that character that can be, I mean, not even one note at times, but like seems to have in the first three seasons fall more the wayside than the other three. Uh, what was the, the title on that one? Do you remember? Is it uh, Something Borrowed, the- Something Green? So yeah, um, I, I you know I have my notes here in front of me, and like obviously the incredibly emotional, good Tendi story. Uh, you know the number one thing I wrote down here is how happy I was to see a reference to uh, "Move Along Home," which is commonly mm. thought of as the worst DS9 episode, even though to me it's uh, it's actually fun as hell. It's just like this really old school TOS narrative that's like totally campy and makes no sense. Oh, it's not the worst DS9 episode by a long chalk. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. Not, not when profit and lace exists. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to blow you off course there. Yeah, no, that's uh, that, that, that's you know the I mean like, but let's talk the the Tendi angle, Kev. I I feel like you were you were sort of moved by the the character and emotionality in this one, right? Oh yeah, I just think like the idea of giving her that um that sister character and like giving her like all this political status and uh, ability on Orion and the. This, the knowledge that she gave that away because she doesn't want to fit into this like stereotype of her um, species or culture, but instead like does love science. And that is her motivating factor for everything she does. I don't know. It's, it makes you think of the character differently where it's like before she's like very much uh, like, oh, I love science, like, you know, the, the classic Facebook page meme account, like I love science. And this is like, making it a personality and that's not a negative thing about her i think it's very delightful how much she like enjoys what she enjoys but i definitely giving her that reason of it's being an act of rebellion in its way i don't know it it makes the character a lot more interesting to me and already like this contrasting that sort of bright bubbly personality with her being such like a master assassin i mean that's just good comedy in general but also it's just really fun to sort of see that contrast play out in action yeah, I think it does a really good job of being able to integrate the character work with the wider kind of um, Star Trek lore, if you will, because the, the Orions have always been a little bit of a, a punchline. You know, they've always been, oh, like, it's the hot green woman in the, uh, in the you know, TOS title sequence or, or whatever. And it's always been kind of a lazy shorthand. Even, I think it's the, I think it's the 2009 Abrams movie that has, like, 
Kirk with an Orion at the academy being like mm. a bit of a dog and trying to do a runner or whatever. I forget the exact details of it, but yeah, it's it's always been that that kind of punchline. So it manages that whole episode and that sort of character arc of Tendi really manages to walk that line of being able to really deepen Tendi's character, but also deepen our understanding of a race so that we're not just falling back on kind of like the lazy cliches of they're all this or they're all that. Some of that is in there. We do get plenty of pirate stuff. We get to see, you know, Tendi being a badass, the sister character, all that kind of stuff, which is great, but it just gives us more of an insight and an understanding into the way that Tendi functions and, and why she kind of is the way that she is. But that that kind of broader understanding of, of Orion culture and why they are, you know, still a race that are worth spending time with is also just so well handled. Yeah, I can, I totally agree. I mean, I'm a sucker for uh, sort of uh, deeper dives into the culture of Star Trek races. I mean, I think Ron Moore really starts this with Klingons. You know, he's uh, obviously really inspired by the the John M. Ford novel that uh, is published in between, I think, the original series and the movies. Um, and, uh, and you know, he, he builds Klingon culture out into something that, you know, whether it makes sense or not, certainly feels deeper and, and more uh, authentic. Um, and I love it when, when they do that with any race in Star Trek. Uh, you know, I think it's Enterprise season four that starts to give us more with the Orions in terms of mm -hmm. like this uh, inverting this slave girl thing such that it's a much more matriarchal society than it like appears on the surface. Um, and like, I thought that, you know, some of that stuff can be really silly, like this like pheromone thing and everything. So like I, I thought it was really well handled here where like it feels cute, but it also feels like interesting what the lives of like men on this. World. Oh, yeah, it's like I, it's interesting, but also just like funny, like there's a lot of great humor in this episode as well, exploring the culture where it is like playing with these tropes and finding the humor in them beyond just what they were used for in these sort of campy ways they were originally used for. I, I do think the whole, like, um, not, it, it is a sex dungeon, I guess we can call it that. <laughs> it's that, definitely that whole, a sex dungeon. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to think of a more polite way to phrase it, but no, no, no. It's, it, it, and it's just, it's funny. Like, that's, I don't know, it's hard to dissect comedy, I think, sometimes. But, like, funny is funny, and just having that sort of reveal that the men are, like, in go-go cages dancing around in down there. Like, the whole contrast in the episode of, like, Tending being this sweet, more upstanding person, and then the deeper you go in Orion, the more weird and crazy the traditions get. It's just such a such a delight. Yeah, it and yeah, I mean there was the whole like fight in the bar beforehand that was also really fun. There's just so much good moments there. And I love the fact that it also gives us the opportunity to explore um, a different side of Talin as well, because uh, you know, uh, firstly, obviously Talin great just such a brilliant addition as a regular character to the mm -hmm. series um but the moment at the end of that episode where you know she throws away the 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 pad because you know ultimately her friendship with uh, tendy is more important than her alleged research that she's supposed to be doing into orion culture and it's a really charming moment that doesn't 
when I say it didn't need to be there, I mean it. I I mean it in the way that like if that hadn't been there, it wouldn't really overall affect the episode. But the fact that they bothered to include it, and so we not only get like the development of Tendi, but we start to see these other sides of Talin coming through as well. It just makes such uh, a difference to the way that we perceive these people. And the fact that in an episode which really is, you know, completely about uh, the Orion culture and about the way that uh, that Tendi fits into it, the fact that the episode also takes the time to give us just a little push for Talyn as well and just lets us see a little bit more about what's going inside her too is just so, so well handled. It's really brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is this is this a good time to, to talk about Talyn? Because, like, boy, what an MVP for this season. I guess I just want to put a quick capper on put a quick capper on Tendi. I do really like the addition of her sister Erica, voiced by Kimiko Glenn, an actor I adore. And I think the way they have her in the cliffhanger, not much to say about what she does in that last episode beyond just using more of that Orion knowledge to like work well to her own ends. But I do like the idea of when we find her next season, we'll see how far back she's gone into Orion culture. I think it's an interesting way to leave things. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's just, it's so interesting. And I mean, like, I wouldn't be surprised if Mike went back to like, you know, the the myth of like the Chinese pirate queen and like, oh yeah, you know, for the first time, it just really feels like these are, you know, authentic beings that live in their own world uh, that doesn't just sort of stop and start moving the minute Starfleet shows up, you know? Mm-hmm. Or leaves. Absolutely. But yeah, if that's our Tendi thoughts, let's definitely talk to Lynn. I think she is a wonderful um, addition to uh, the show. Like, I've been asked, I've been since that episode in season two, where if you're not familiar, you need a refresher. There was the episode where we look at humans, but also Klingons and Vulcans. Um, oh, no, it's, it's Klingons, Vulcans, and Romulans, and their various versions of Lower Decks. And the Talinj was just such a standout in that episode. And what a, a great, like, gift to themselves of the writers to have her come back on full-time this season. As Strange New Worlds, I think, is also proving this year, uh, I love Vulcan comedy. And I think they're just, like, there's so many great races in Star Trek, but they are one of the best ones. It's just so much to do with them and that setup of the perfectly logical mind and all that. So, yeah, I think just having her around is such a gift for great gags and also just she's a wonderful character in her own right well you know it's it's like we say vulcans are are great but like really what we mean by that are like four vulcans in the entire history of the franchise were great uh you know mostly they're sort of like boring self-serious pricks um and i think a lot of that has to do with uh people not realizing the formula that makes spock work or Sarek work which is that the, they are these characters that have this uh, sort of placid stoicism on the surface, and uh, there's enough there to indicate that there is a sort of raging sea of turmoil underneath. Um, and in terms of that, Talyn is maybe one of the best we've seen since Spock and Sarek and maybe, uh, you know, uh, Christy Alley in uh, Wrath of Khan to just sort of land just absolutely at a gallop. You know, just uh, like an immediate sense that there is uh, a lot going on internally that is being fought by her sort of Vulcan culture and training. 
And that's what makes a Vulcan really interesting. Yeah, I think as we're sort of, I think, finding these like specific episodes to shout out with each character, um, the fifth episode, Empathological Fallacies, which is the big Tillin episode, gets into exactly what you're talking about, where her sort of emotional turmoil, which she, of course, never expresses in the tone of her voice at all or anything like that, uh, starts causing everyone to sort of have a bit of an emotional freak out that is very another very classic Trek subplot dating back to naked time and what have you um to filter that through to lynn i think was such a smart and fun decision well this episode directly calls back to uh Sarek, which is a, a tnd ep- tng episode in which spock's dad comes back for the first time in you know the sort of the new version of the series uh and he has a bendai syndrome which is the thing that to lynn is dealing with here um you know, what's really interesting is I had totally forgotten that when I watched this episode for the first time. And I was sort of sitting there like, oh, man, they really, they're swinging hard for the fences with how psychic Vulcans are. Like, I don't know if I've ever read them as this psychic. And then just last night, my roommates had Sarek on in the background. And I was like, oh, goddamn, this is the exact same plot. Like, they literally, not in a bad way, but in like a... Uh, originally, I was going to talk about how, like, oh, is this a is this an expansion of existing Vulcan canon to say that they're this psychic? Well, like, no. Once again, Mike is digging, you know, sort of right in the the canon there. Absolutely, and and um, I, funny, I I watched Sarek Rathu recently as well because I'm watching TNG for the first time with my with my fella, and um, and it was it was interesting watching the two in such close proximity to each other. I think the other thing that I really love about um, Talyn, and um, John, you were talking about this, about getting Vulcans right, is the other thing that really makes their humor work is that they are sarcastic. And that's what mm. I love about Talyn's, uh, particularly like the first couple of episodes that Talyn is in, in season three. It's just this very dry kind of sarcasm um, it's something that Spock was very good at, and it's something that Tuvok is really good at as well in, in Voyager. So, uh, Tuvok gets to the point where he's basically just Betty Davis in space, which I am fine with, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's great. He's just delivering these flippant one-liners, like he should have a cigarette and a cocktail glass in his hands, you know. It's like he's just this great character who's found exactly that way of, of um, making... Uh, Vulcan's interesting and because Tim Russ is such a good actor he can also kind of pull off the dramatic side as well um and Talyn absolutely plays into that kind of tradition uh and uh, yeah John you're right like so many Vulcans are just played as kind of dull because when you say oh no emotions a lot of actors first choices are just going to be to play it flat but given that slightly sarcastic slightly bitchy edge to it really brings the whole thing to life and Talyn is just great for being able to do that. And uh, Gabrielle Ruiz is so good at the delivery of those lines. Just perfect comic timing. Absolutely inscrutable, yet deeply sarcastic voice. It's just an absolutely glorious performance. Yeah, and a shout out to uh, Gene Kuhn, the uh, the other Gene uh, in Star Trek history, who I think uh, you know comes aboard halfway through season one of the original series, has a comedy writer background, and I think is really responsible for adding that kind of uh, sarcastic comedy, that uh, sardonic edge to to Spock, and by extension, I think all the all the good Vulcans. Oh yeah, we're in our TOS um, 
mainline watch through on this podcast. We are deep into the Gene Coon, Gene L. Coon um, era of the show where, and we can do nothing but sing his praises all the more Absolutely. every time it becomes obvious his hand is present in an episode. And I think Jet's totally dead on where like, I mean, an episode like a muck time does not happen without Gino Kuhn and um, also DC Fontana sort of shaping those original characters and Spock in that way. And uh, that influence is so well felt with like the good Vulcan characters that follow, uh, which I fully agree with both of you that Tolin is definitely in that lineage. And I just want to shout out Gabriel Ruiz as well. Another great continuation of this show's great casting. Um, they know every great character, actor in alt comedy tv show or alt comedy podcast out there and uh, she's it's so different from her crazy ex-girlfriend character which is why i mainly associate her with but still such a great use of her she is absolutely flourishing as in this role yeah and and uh uh you know speaking to those those older vulcans and whatever i think one of my favorite things about Talyn is that she brings this new element that i think casts an extra dimension on that, right? Which is like, it is very fun and funny to think that every Vulcan that we have ever seen in Star Trek are the psychos, right? That they're all the mariners of their individual ships and cultures. Otherwise, they wouldn't have chosen to live this insane life around not just human beings who are already messy and chaotic, but Starfleet, which is just about the like most messy and chaotic place you can go. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think there's definitely implication there with Spock, even back in the original, which is sort of the whole half-human thing. But this is really making it text in a way that's like very fun and fascinating at the same time. Yeah, I think absolutely. Like like the 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 insight we have on Spock joining Starfleet, you know, mostly comes from like offhand comments and Star Trek 2009, right? And in in 2009, it very much feels like a kind of active rebellion, right? Uh, that's sort of satisfying this like connection he has to his mother and like Vulcan's culture's like dismissal of that. But I think like what we know about Spock and TOS, you know, it's it's I, I do feel like it's it's much more that like, you know, there's something about this guy that just wasn't fitting in where he was. Uh you know, which is why in Journey to Babel, Sarek seems so um, disappointed in him. You know, like he's done this insane thing of joining Starfleet. Like, why? Like, you could be on the Vulcan Science Council. Yeah, it's an interesting place to take them all. I'm deeply excited for what we're going to get uh, from Talyn in the next season as well, because there's just so much potential wrapped up there and i'm really hoping that we're going to get a, a, an episode which digs um you know much further into the background and the, the the kind of motivations there but right right at this point at the end of season four i mean just just the best addition to the cast that we could possibly have hoped for yeah and i was really i thought it was really interesting like oh how is this fifth character like are they going to be just a recurring guest star are they going to unbalance the cast so the decision to send tendy away and have Talyn come in, hmm. just the kind of thing that keeps the show fresh, yeah. you know, at this point in the sort of middle of its life. Yeah, I, I'm also very unsure if it is goodbye to Tendi forever, though. I mean, I think it, it works so well with all five of them being present, and I mean, there's almost that confidence at the end too, explicitly stated that she'll come back. 
So I guess we'll see. But yeah, if it is goodbye to Tendi, I, we have a great science officer replacing her. It's she's such a good character. Um, and the little arc she gets of like w- wanting to go back to Vulcan and seeing this as like a setback to now finding her place among the crew is I think just very understated, but very well done. My, my prediction, by the way, with Tendi is, uh, of course, it's not goodbye forever, but mm-hmm. you know, what you tend to do in a show like this is you'll send one of your four main cast away. It'll give you a B plot to cut back to over the like mm-hmm. first four episodes of the next season Meanwhile, you can play with this totally new dynamic of like, what are these four like with this different cast member subbed in in the sort of fourth role? I suppose they did that briefly with Boimler in season two. So yeah, it is a pretty good prediction. Well, uh, speaking for uh, Boimler, shall we shall we move on from uh, Tallinn and uh, and dive in there? It's the only other reference I've heard outside of one episode of DS Nine to Vulcans getting drunk via chocolate and not alcohol, mm-hmm. um, which I think is so cool. Like in my Star Trek role-playing game, I was a Vulcan. I made that like an important part of my like personal canon. And I literally thought nobody else even noticed that Quark had said that other than me. Uh, mm. What else is worth noting? Oh, on the, the question of Vulcan psychicness, right? I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to say, right? Like, I think for one thing, this this episode and Sarek almost imply that Vulcans are more psychic than Betazoids, which is interesting because they usually behave as though they are less psychic. And I wonder if that's a function of training that kind of, like, keeps that psychicness from manifesting itself which is why they need the sort of like physical touch of the, the mind meld and what have you. Um, but it's interesting that like in both cases, when they are out of control, they don't need physical touch. They don't need anything. They're literally just broadcasting their emotions in a way that even to a Betazoid would be like insanely powerful. I, I, I mean, speaking of Betazoids, I do want to bring up uh, the three Betazoids we get on that episode. Uh, Rachel Dratch, Wendy Malik, and um, Janelle James. Just legends. Do a great job. Great guest casting, <laughs> as usual. I, I love hearing their voices in that. And it's it's fun characters that wind up not impacting much of the story, but are great red herrings. And yeah, they're just having a good time. I think, in general, the guest cast casting this uh, season is like par excellence. Yeah, and of course, a, a, another really smart expansion, I think, to, again, alien cultures and mm-hmm. putting toys in the toy box for the canon of the show, finding out that there is such a thing as a Betazoid intelligence service, I think, just rules. So cool. Yeah. Because you can imagine a version of that in a different show where they're really, like, pretty deadly and scary, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, they're, they're effective characters that, like, are the subject of good jokes, but don't them the, they themselves become jokes, which is that Lord X line that walks so well. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And it, it's it's also refreshing to have uh, some Betazoids behaving like that, who aren't just as, um, I'm sorry, there's no way to sugarcoat this, but aren't just as irritating as Loxana. So I know, Kev, that's very much something that's in your future. Enjoy when oh, we get there. And, I, I have uh, heard so much positive and negative about Loxana. I'm very fascinated what side I'm going to fall on. Mm. Well, I think I've tipped my hand there. Yeah. <laughs> he would be so at home on, like, Bravo. 
<laughs> yeah, like you can I see th- her. Is that a compliment? <laughs> yeah, and then like one of those real housewives shows where it's like, I may be a betazoid, but I'm no beta in the bedroom or like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like I, the 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 other thing that I think is really interesting. By the way, I don't know. By the way, JG and Kev, what your sort of larger uh, experience with the franchise is. Like JG, you said you're going through TNG for the first time. Uh, no, my my uh, partner is watching it for the first time. Oh, yeah. I I have watched Star Trek since I was uh, since 1973, which is the year I was born. Sadly, because uh, my dad used to use it as an excuse for uh, him. Uh, used to use having a son as an excuse for him to be able to watch uh, Star Trek. Um, and I've written two books on Star Trek Voyager, so I'm I'm deep in the weeds here. Okay, great. Then you'll you I will go as deep. Uh, as I can here, and uh, and you'll understand. Um, I think it's so interesting that we never see a telepathic Romulan, right? And I think that there's actually like a story here that makes total sense if you kind of read between the lines, which is like Vulcans are kind of pretty telepathic. Romulans leave Vulcans, and they clearly develop this culture of like intense paranoia, secrecy, so, like, they're probably the kind of people who would have killed or exiled every telepath in their population. Because, like, why would you have them around? It's so dangerous. And then Remans are, like, ultra-psychic. So, like, it, it kind of makes sense that, like, every Romulan was sent to go work in the rhymes of minds. Every Romulan telepath was sent into the minds of Remus, and that's how you get Remans that's that's an interesting that's an interesting piece of speculation especially since our only real encounter with the remans is in star trek nemesis not a well-regarded movie um, <laughs> although, although although controversial opinion time i still think it's the second best next gen movie not a field that covers itself in glory i will be the first to admit um but yeah yeah that's definitely possible um and then you have the the weird hybrid of of uh, heroin era um, Tom Hardy as is he? Oh, I don't know. That's a whole. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. That's that's a whole different thing. Um, anyway, yes, you you're uh, yes. I think you're probably very right. Anyway, I'm sorry. I just wanted to do that fan digression for a second. We can we can move on. <laughs> I just love Vulcans. Something for me to consider in the year 2030. <laughs> when you when you make it that far in the franchise, yeah, exactly. At, at the rate we're going, yes. <laughs> but yes, uh, I I do want to talk about Boimler, who I think he and Rutherford have the slightest amount of character growth this season. But making them roommates is such a slam dunk decision. Um, I I do love the episode. I can't remember. Would it? Is it the second one when the Moopsie episode where it's rough, where it's Boimler trying to find like a new quarters and each one is horrifying? That's a really good subplot. Yes, that's the second episode. I have no bones yet. I must free. God. We'll do a whole Moopsie digression once we're out of this whole talking about the characters in detail thing. But uh, the I also love the Boimler plot that episode. Having him be wind up by the engines and learning he can lower the sh- shades is just it's just really good comedy and really great thinking through of the world i mean talk about talk about a line you could only get on this show stupid boussard light yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like boussard collector on the nacelles you have to like study the yeah. blueprints to get that joke 
And yet it doesn't feel self-indulgent, which is what right. I, I really like about it. It manages to it manages again to walk that line between like if you get it, that's a funny that's a funny reference. But like if you don't know what the bizarre collectors are, it, it doesn't really matter. It's well written enough that you just go, Oh right, that's what they call that light for some reason. It's that's such a, a such a delicate thing. And it's not honestly, it's not a line that um lower decks gets right absolutely every time but on that one they absolutely nailed it oh and i think this is a great way speaking of history of star trek can we talk about my history of star trek because i think this is something that shares with my first introduction to star trek which was the futurama episode where the star trek tos guest cast guest star and i think what both that episode and lower decks share similarly to your point jg is the idea i've talked about this before where you don't have to understand what the jokes mean. Their specificity is so strong that you're laughing anyways, because mm. I mean, you, you can pick it up, you go fast, like, oh, well, that's just what they call it, or oh, that just must be what the cliche is. That must just be how things work in this sort of frame of reference. And I just think that is, I mean, that's kind of why um, I've sort of stuck with Star Trek from like 09 onwards, and I've only now for this podcast gone back to the 20th century um, an incarnation of this franchise because I, with the good Star Trek, which I've mostly seen and while avoiding things like Picard and such, which are outside my wheelhouse, but the goods things like the Abrams movie, like this show, well, two of the three Abrams movies, you know what I mean? Um, they do a good job keeping the viewer up to pace. So like, yes, it was Starlight. There's such great detail there for a longtime fan, like both of you who know what it means. But for me, like you said, JG, it's just what they call it. But the fact that that specificity is there makes it so funny. Of course, Boimler would know what that light is called. I don't need to know anything else to find that a really funny joke. And as long as we've mentioned it, uh, as long as we've mentioned where no fan has gone before, Mm -hmm. shout out to uh, David Goodman, WGA president, nicest guy in the world. Um, Very talented comedy writer who's also, I think, like, the best Star Trek novelist. He's written two that I think are incredible. Uh, and David says that fans have, he's never seen everyone get every reference in that episode. That like, there's mm. still ones fans haven't found. That's really fun. And uh, congrats to David for running a great strike if he's a WGA president. Uh, that was- Oh really... yeah, he, he was head, he was, I mean, one of three on our neg comms. So yeah. Um, yeah, I, I rewatched where no fan has gone before after I met David Goodman and I caught a reference that I had never caught before, which is at the end of the, the episode when uh, um, when they're like, you know, it was paradise and all we had to put up with was one Star Trek fan. And then there's a beat and then Kirk goes, let's get the hell out of here. Right. Uh, it's a reference to the end of City on the Edge of Forever. Which oh, I yeah. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. And that is the joy of that episode. Walking that line perfectly. I'm sorry, JG, you said something. I didn't hear. Sorry, I, I just said that's why that episode is so perfect where no fan has gone before, because you can still find these things in it. Yeah, and I mean, that's that, I guess that's sort of my point, is that carries over to Lower Decks. Um, it's a show where like there's so much you can find in it, but you can also, like me, go in half blind and still like the characters resonate, the jokes resonate. It's It's all about the timing and specificity of them. Um, and sometimes I don't even know if there's a TNG reference to this, but I just want to bring up maybe my favorite single joke of the whole season. 
don't know if this is, this is a reference to anything, but the Mark Twain simulation where Boimler and Rutherford work out their di- problems is really funny. Uh, that's definitely a next-gen reference. Yeah, specifically okay. Time's Arrow, uh, where we get to meet uh, Mark Twain too. Limited effect. <laughs> uh, to a to a great part one and a poor part two. Yeah, so a typical TNG two-parter, in other words. Um, <laughs> they're almost all like that, except maybe Chain of Command and Best of Both Worlds. Um, yeah, anyway, sorry, I, I, I digress. Um, yeah, the Mark Twain thing is a whole thing. How did, how did that land for you, Kev? I thought it was hilarious. I laughed so hard. Just like, because again, I don't, need to know if it's a reference or something the specificity of it being it has to be mark twain and then them arguing over who gets to be mark twain because like, i know what the concept of the holodeck is i think that's all you really need to know for all the holodeck stuff on the show using it for like i i am vaguely culturally aware that tng and ds9 and voyager would use the holodeck for fairly perverse and weird and genre bending means so the way lower deck treats it as to the next step of and these are the funny ways like really emphasizing the humor there it's just yeah the mark twain such just feels so in line with something they would do where like i get to be mark twain i off new york twain and then selling the differences and their disputes by both pretending to be mark twain and talking it out and the callback later which completely took the wind out of me um just laughing so hard where they tried to do the same thing with um, the the captain and the person she's negotiating with is just really, really good. And, and of course the callback in the finale is also just exquisite. Yeah. I mean, it's really nice to see the holodeck used. I think the Orville does this really well too, mm-hmm. um, taking its cues from TNG, but like as the, as the place where future people play and like, what does play in the future look like? And like, how does it manifest? And, you know, one of the things that I've always been really fascinated by is we have in, uh, in the Ferengi episode, we have this subplot with Boimler where he ends up sort of TV addicted, right? And maybe right. he's sort of especially uh, susceptible to it because he doesn't have any kind of antibodies for like advertising or TV because he's from the Federation. And I think what's so smart about this is it picks up on something that I spent a lot of time thinking about, which is that outside of Tom Paris, we never see anyone watch any form of any visual media anywhere in Star Trek, right? It's almost like, and to a certain extent, this, this, you know, falls into the like, they never make a reference to 20th century pop culture past like 20s noir, right? But it also kind of feels like at some point in the future, somebody like ran the numbers and was like, this is so bad for you. Like, it's such a passive activity. Like it's, you know, it's addictive. It encourages obesity, right? It's better if we spend our time in the holodeck or like learning the violin, right? And so like every form of passive art that we see that exists in the Star Trek world is something that betters someone, right? Like it's not... I'm going to watch a recording of a play. It's I'm going to go watch a play because my friend learned to act and I'm supporting him, you know? And I just, I think that's really interesting and kind of like a, 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 a difficult contradiction when Star Trek is itself television. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting point. And it just, yeah, it, it just speaks to how well this show understands the universe it's in when you're yeah, right, that it knows that, 
it just instinctually knows about this sort of active forms of um, engagement and can make great jokes about them. There's so many great jokes about people playing instruments or things like that across this show. And then you're right, the scene where Boimler gets addicted to the Ferengi television, which I, again, not knowing much about the Ferengi beyond what I've picked up through cultural osmosis, but all of that stuff is so funny. Cop landlords is my <laughs> other favorite joke of the season. Um, just, and you're right, it is such a smart idea to sort of take all these things that Star Trek Stubbs has granted, um, not just what you mentioned, but also like the no money and the infinite resources, etc. And then throw in like curveballs, like, well, how would a character react to television? And just that's, it's Boimler maybe gets the least to do that episode. And he like, it's still one of the funniest parts. It is so, such a good use of that character where um, sort of breaking down the barriers of him being an over planner. Yeah. Outside of, oh, sorry, uh, well, I was, I was going to say outside of Tom Paris, nobody watches visual media, but that's also why Tom Paris is such a great character and desperately underappreciated. And of course we do have plenty of Robert Duncan McNeil in, in this season as well. But anyway, I, I slightly digress. Um, yeah. I mean, I really, I really, I, I enjoy Boimler so much that it's very easy to not be that critical. Um, Jack Quaid um, is so good at playing that character. Um, and he manages to land so much of what makes him um, an interesting guy to, to spend time with. And I'm really glad as well that um, that Boimler has taken a bit more of a, a back seat. Um, especially after the Strange New Worlds crossover as well, um, but I just I'm I'm I, I think he gets more than enough to do without it having to be uh, like this constant. Like, like um, to draw a parallel, one of the one of <laughs> one of the biggest flaws of Star Trek Discovery is that it just can't get away from Michael Burnham, and it becomes incredibly tedious because we just don't have the opportunity to be able to explore other characters in the way that we want. But um, Lower Decks is comfortable enough with its ensemble cast. And I, this is a much broader principle, but I think Star Trek works at its best when it's an ensemble. Um, but um, I love the fact that uh, Lower Decks has that confidence to be able to, um, to put Boimler on the back burner. So we have time to explore Tulin. So we have time to explore Tandy. So we have time to explore, you know, just whatever else is going on, uh, Mariner or whoever, uh, you know, and that, that shows real trust in the audience as well. And I think that trust in the audience is, is again, slightly broader point. Um, but it's one of the reasons that Lower Decks is so effective as a piece of television. It trusts the audience to know that just because we've chosen to shift our focus doesn't mean that this character is of less import or that, that they don't matter anymore, but that we also want to be able to spend time exploring the other part of the crew, you know, with the uh, with the original series, obviously we have Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as the primary focus of those episodes. But even even where we are, sort of about a third of the way through season two, we've had you know Scotty taking major roles. We've had Uhura get decent uh, lines. We've had uh, even Chekhov, who's barely been introduced at this stage, gets a couple of really good chunky meaty parts in a couple of episodes. Uh, and Next Gen is such an it's the most ensemble cast of of the sort of twentieth century Star Trek. It does such a good job of being able to give space 
to everyone so that we don't always have to be focusing on Picard or we don't always have to be focusing on data or at least not until about midway through season six when that's pretty much all we get. But anyway, um, you know, it, it's just, it's such a confident thing for Lower Decks to be able to do. I love Jack Quaid. I love Boimler, but it's just such a nice way. And like having him, having him become addicted to TV or something like that, again, it ought to be a pretty clunky piece of writing but it's really not it's handled in a way that isn't just ha 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 tv's bad for you and yet that's also precisely what it is as well um it's 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 just very elegant really yeah well i mean like kev you were saying you've picked up everything you know about the ferengis through osmosis but the truth is you live on ferenginar yeah that that is very true um <laughs> i we, we are probably months away from a memorial that um mourns people's lost uh, money because of <laughs> another wonderful gag um yeah there is exactly one sort of boimler focused a plot which is in the cradle of exelon the third episode uh just worth shouting out while we're on topic of boimler still and it's a really good one of emphasizing what the junior grade promotion means to a lot of these characters um putting him in charge and not knowing what to do when he is in charge is, yeah, it's just, it works really well. Of course, he'd be the type to, like, just try to do it himself. I can relate to that, not knowing how to delegate. Uh, he is, and it just, yeah, it's such a great expansion of that character, and it's a great lesson for him to learn. That he It makes me confident that he could be captain someday, as he always dreams of being, the way he learns how to be a leader in that episode. Uh, JG, as a Brit, uh, did you pick up on the, the, the sort of... Uh title of the Ferengi episode and what it's a reference to? It's so weird. Uh, no. Heart, Ferengi. heart Ferengi's Heart Place? Uh, uh, it seems to me to be a play on uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place? Oh, God, I can't it stand Dark Garth Marenghi. Yeah, okay, That's fair so enough. Weird. Uh, the Americans are running circles around you for that one. <laughs> I'm an anglophile. It barely counts. Oh no, I I I feel I feel ashamed. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, never, oh, a, a, a quick shout out to Dave Foley in that episode, though, um, oh, yeah? because oh, I love Kids in the Hall. So that uh, that that hopefully that will redeem me slightly in your eyes, if nothing else. <laughs> um, oh 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 oh, and News Radio because it's one of the best sitcoms ever. Sorry, carry on. Oh yes, while we're sharing out guest stars, I wanted to circle back to Vexelon because um, Oscar Montoya is really good as an evil computer. Not evil though, actually, which is a really, that's the thing, it's a twist on the evil computer, which is like a plot we've already encountered a dozen times in TOS as we're working through it a season and a half in. And yet still, the idea of the well-meaning computer that winds up causing the same problems anyways, really good. And since I don't want to be outdone in name dropping, even though I will be anyways, Oscar Montoya, substitute teacher for an improv class I took one time. So I've met him. Nice guy. Like what I could tell. I was, I was just saying, now I'm worried I've done too much name dropping. I feel terrible. No, I'm Ooh. so sorry. I'm so sorry to make you feel that way. It's, I love hearing about uh, the, the people, these people that you've encountered who have such a great work on this show. I mean, the um, truth is I'm just a fan. So I just, I consider yes. myself really lucky every time I get to rub shoulders with them a little bit, you know? Of course. Um, I can't think of a better transition. So speaking of people who are fans of many things, um, let's also talk about Rutherford, who is, uh, I just think also is like, like Boimler, like I said, has sort of a more backseat this season. But uh, yeah, I really like what he does. 
uh, when they put him in the forefront. We already talked about sort of their roommate squabbling and the Mark Twain thing, which I love, but uh, he also gets a resolution to the Badgie arc, which I think is very fun. Yeah, and and they sort of push his relationship forward with with Tendi, mm-hmm. which I know there's um I know there's always a uh, you know a will they won't they Sam Diane thing that's at the heart of so many shows and sitcoms and showrunners are always worried about spoiling that. But did you guys kind of want to see them get together at the end of that Ferengi episode? I know I was really rooting for that so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah definitely. God, it's so funny because. I thought it was sort of sweet and a bit of a swerve how platonic their relationship was up until then. And then in that episode, I'm like, oh, if they're doing this, they're doing this really well. I would love to see them get together. And then it ends with them like blithely ignoring everything about that episode and just going back to being friends again. And I just think, you know what? That's appropriate. <laughs> I, I do like that they have that in their back pocket the whole time. The chemistry is so strong. They can pull the trigger whenever that the tease is like almost more fun than the confirmation. Well, that's always the way with Will They Won't They, isn't it? You know, the, the lead up is always, is more interesting. Yeah. Of course, Sam and Diane is the, is the classic one, but, uh, but uh, Niles and Daphne and Frasier as well. Like once they got together, like the show didn't fall apart, but it lost a certain something. Um, and yeah, the, the, the run up is always the most interesting part of those, of those kind of sort of developments in their, in their relationship. Um, I don't, mind that they um didn't necessarily i would i'd love that i would love them to get together i don't mind Mm -hmm. the fact that they didn't um but it's one of those things where i wish they'd found a slightly better way of handling it than just having them oh well we've completely ignored this incredibly obvious thing because it made the characters look a bit dumb in a way like they Mm could have had a couple of lines like oh all right we we acknowledge this but you know what we're fine as friends for now. So we're just going to leave things as they are, you know, like just like something that would have maybe just slightly like to put just that, that, that blithe ignoring as you put it. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't quite manage to pull that off, but like, but yeah, it's something that will be returned to. I'm sure. Yeah. It's something that I think has, has, uh, you know, it, it, to, to sprinkle very light criticism on my praise for the show. I think, it's taken a while for Rutherford and Tendy to take off as characters in part because they play that puppy dog, you know, like science focused, almost autistic thing so hard with both of them that, you know, it's hard to feel like there are multiple layers to characters that lack self-awareness in that way. And of course, I think we've done a lot in the, the, the four seasons to really grow those parts of both of them but yeah i think they're sort of like blithe like not even acknowledging of it like it 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 feels like season one in some ways right of their right they're just like they're not very self-critical or introspective people uh they're they're kind of their starfleet roles are up front you know yeah i'm still waiting for a really great rutherford story i think because season three put a lot of focus on him with like his mysterious history and all, but it always felt like stuff that happened to him and that he was reacting to. But I don't, that's kind of why season three is a much the weakest season of the show for me. It didn't really feel like it deepened his character all that much, which I mean, to the show's writer's credit, it feels like season four is almost a reaction to that. A lot of the story here, especially when we talk about Mariner, we'll get into that there, but like it, the storylines here feel like they're actually deepening the characters and pushing them in new directions instead of just here is things that are happening to you that you can react to. And 
so yeah, I feel like we are still missing that great depth to Rutherford that maybe Tenzi got a little more of this season. Because I agree, from the from the start, Mariner and Boimler already seemed like really interesting and engaging and complex characters. Was Rutherford and Tendi fairly similar and again not one note, but definitely lacking the same depth as their two co-stars. Um, but yeah, it's. I think if there's any good Rutherford arc this season, is at least again the Badgie episode. I think is a really good uh, example of him reckoning with things that he's done in the past, and it gives that more depth that the whole secret history evil Rutherford stuff didn't have. Yeah, absolutely. You almost want to see more flaws from Rutherford, right? right. I mean, look, Tendi has this inner anger and shame about her past, mm-hmm. and. Rutherford is just, he's such a good guy, such a nice guy that it like, you would get a little more complexity if there were certain things I knew Rutherford didn't like about himself or others. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not sure that the, the, um, his kind of fake rivalry thing in this, uh, season really landed that either. Um, it, 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 it's just being played as a joke. It's not really being, when I say um, sort of fake rivalry, I mean the rivalry is real, but the the kind of the character motivation behind it just feels like like they want to give it that kind of thing. Like, oh, he's not just like a perfect guy; he can be super jealous. And you know, he has that line of, uh, "Oh, uh, hey, you mean I can just ask for things that I deserve?" Um, and that's like a really nice line, mm-hmm. and it's nice to see him have that degree of self awareness. But then there's not an awful lot which is really done with it come uh you know come the rest of the season and again particularly around the whole uh sort of will they want they thing like he's suddenly he's he's very very definitely not self-aware so they give him that moment and then they kind of pull back from it as well so it's it definitely feels like it's a little bit inconsistent in the way that the, the character has uh, is being handled uh, but the performance remains absolutely delightful yeah i don't think we've shouted we didn't shout noel wells i think directly with tendy and we Briefly talk about Jack McQuaid, Boimler, but this whole cast is incredible. And specifically, you're talking about Eugene Cordero as Rutherford here. He's so funny. I've been a huge fan of him for a while. Again, that's like a great pull from like a guy who is mostly known for doing comedy on podcasts and being pulled up to here. He's just a delight. He's really good on this show. Yeah, you can really feel them writing to their cast. Like it's crazy how much. Like, you know, they did the the live action translation of the animation counterparts in Strange New World. But like, you just as easily could have done it with Tendi and Rutherford, right? Like, that, right. Those, those characters feel so much like their actors. They do. And I think, uh, I mean, that's really one of the reasons I think the, the uh, crossover episode with Strange New Worlds works so well because the Lord X characters are so closely modeled on on the actors, but not in a way that makes it seem like a sort of lazy shortcut. It makes it seem like, you know, they're really putting something into it of themselves. And so when we actually get like a live action version of them, it, it works incredibly well. Oh, yeah, I fully agree. I mean, speaking of the other character who became a live action version, I think now we get to talk about Beckett Mariner and, uh, Tawny Newsom is really good as her this season. I think her arc, it's almost a little too dramatic for me, especially because it comes out of nowhere at the end of the season. Oh, I have some quibbles the writing, but I love Tawny Newsom's performance throughout. Another actor who I like, I appreciate so much on like podcasts and live shows. And then finally, when she's feels like she's been called into the big leagues with this show and is really flourishing. 
Kev, I, I assume you've never seen the uh, the TNG uh, Lower Decks episode? I haven't. So yeah, all of that was like new information that I had to quickly have my friend Carl, uh, previous upcoming guests for the Doomsday Machine and also previous guests on the show. But um, he we watched it together with some other friends and he had to catch me up on <laughs> who um, Nick Lurcano and uh, the other um, character who Mary had a friendship with were. Well, yeah. So the yeah. So Nick Nick Locarno, uh comes from an episode of TNG uh, called First Duty, which is uh, about uh, Wesley sort of at the academy. Uh, you know, a classmate dies, and it turns out that he's part of this like fratty all star squadron led by Nick Locarno that's covering up this death. Um, and, but Sito, uh, who is the character that Mariner kind of right. it turns out to be her central trauma the thing that's holding her back she's from the original lower decks episode of tng which mike says you know inspired this show uh and at the end of that episode sito dies um and it kind yeah. of takes a uh, very dramatic turn to a like an otherwise comedic episode um and i thought it was such a sort of just a spiritually nice thing to tie back to that and get that actress back into uh, Star Trek. Because once I was apprised of the history, it all made so much sense. Um, and I think even have it being relying on the history isn't so much of a negative. I caught up on it pretty quickly just from Mariner explaining it. I guess when I say the art comes out of nowhere, it's we don't even have the hint that she had this trauma with her beforehand. And so it really does feel like a lot of information at the end of the season. Oh, no, I think that's fair to say. It's sort of... Yeah. You know, because it's because it really is tying back to something that's been with her for four years now, and we haven't gotten sort of gestures at it. Um, right. I think I think it's a really nice sort of retcon for why she feels this way. But you're, I think you're right to say that it kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, I yeah, I don't think it's an issue of the using continuity. I think the use of continuity is actually very smart and intelligent. Because again, even as someone who didn't know this continuity before I was watching the episode. It did such a good job of keeping me up to pace. Like, I don't even need to know that these characters previously existed. I can infer because this is Lower Decks and everything has meaning with the past of Star Trek. But they did such a good job of letting me know who these people are without that, that context. It's just, for Mariner specifically, I would have loved to see, even if they came up with this idea this season... In episode one, a mention of some kind of trauma holding her back from wanting to be promoted, rather than it all coming out in episode nine. Uh, all coming out in episode nine, and in, in, in what is, I know it's intentionally uh, annoying, but still a very annoying way. Um, yeah. yeah I, I, I didn't love the two-part finale for this. It's not a complete bust, but um, it felt really clunky. And I've got to be honest, I didn't really love the, the callback to... Uh, uh, Nick Locarno either. I mean, I'm always happy to see uh, Robert Duncan McNeil getting work because he's just a very enjoyable actor. Um, but it's also worth pointing out that um, uh, First Duty is rubbish. It's a really bad episode of Next Gen. It's incredibly clunky. It's badly written. It's, mm, well, whether I should do a good thing or a bad thing, I wonder which option Wesley will choose. Mm, it's just rubbish it's really bad um so uh I, I i don't mind trying to rehabilitate like bad episodes but i don't think that lower decks quite managed to do it unfortunately yeah i mean it's uh, sidestepping the question of whether it's it's a quality episode right it's I definitely not. Episode. 
the, the next time uh, we do this, somebody should bring up the inner light so I can go as hard as JG is going right now. Mm-hmm. That's fair. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I really do not like that episode. It's so dull for something so so many people think is the best episode of TNG. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, regardless of the quality of it, I think it's very much regarded as a sort of classic episode among fans. I think because there's a lot of interesting stuff about it, right? It's it's one of the only times we get to see Wesley sort of active in Starfleet. Uh, and of course, the idea that Robert Duncan McNeil plays a character here and then also later plays a character in Voyager, um, I think has been just the subject of a lot of like joking and humor among the fans for like a very long time. So it's a very well-known episode. Um, I will say I love making Nick Locarno a season villain. It's the kind of thing that I just would have laughed my ass off if I was in the room. Um, but when I saw Nick Locarno was going to show up, I was hoping for a little more like sci-fi mind bendy episode that might explain why he and Tom Paris look exactly alike. And instead it's just kind of the, the, the subject of like fourth wall breaking jokes. Yeah. I don't know. I, I I did think that was a good gag with Boyman Rutherford's exchange of like whether they look similar or not. I, oh, it was fine. As, it was a gag I had to have explained to me, but even still, it was a uh, pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's it. You're right. It's that it's her missing. It's he doesn't have much to do really. He just kind of acts like a jerk, and you're almost wondering. And this is another weak point I had in season three is that it ends with this moment where everyone thinks Mariner's betrayed the Cerritos and it's very obvious she hasn't and it's all in big misunderstanding, which I very much rolled my eyes at. And I was worried they would do the same here. Another just big misunderstanding where they think Mariner has betrayed the Cerritos and to their credit, they dispose of that very quickly, but still then there's like no, nothing much to happen with Mariner's character. She's just dumped her backstory and sends that entire finale running away from people running away in very um, dramatically interesting and action packed ways but there's still not much character there. It once again is falls on like Tendi in relationship with her sister making that bargain and uh, Captain Freeman and expressing her love for her daughter where the real like character juice is in that finale. But uh, yeah, it's, it is just kind of a flat thing where he's just kind of a screaming, wailing, mustache twirling villain. Yeah. Cards, cards on the table. I absolutely love part one of this finale. I, 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 you know, I get the criticisms you guys are making, but it's, it's exactly where this show hits me the hardest when it lands is, you know, I think Mike is maybe a more talented, uh, I mean, actually he's a very talented comedy writer. He's been on, you know, I've seen his Rick and Morty episodes and stuff, but in terms of like his Star Trek stuff, I think he's honestly more talented doing drama and science fiction than comedy. Not that his comedy's bad. It's just that, like, this stuff is so good to me. And I love this Klingon character. Oh Yeah nobility with which he's written and how he uh you know just has this really funny way of being uh just sort of like regarding an opponent and how you treat them and and the inherent respect for that you know um and then he can get all the way to where he gets with mariner and then he's like okay now it's time for us to continue to fight to the death and mariner's like are you fucking crazy like here's a hug you know um but i just to back up you guys on like part two um I am, here's what I imagine you're going for with Locarno, right? Is like clearly what is going on in part one of that is it's about Mariner's reluctance to take up a leadership role because she doesn't feel like she deserves it. 
She doesn't feel like Sito ever got there. And Sito is obviously so much better than her from her perspective, right? And the end of that part one is her embracing being a leader, hence her stopping everybody fighting, you know, whatever, right? So you're trying to contrast that with a bad and selfish leader in Nick Locarno, right? Which I think is interesting, but there's nothing to sort of grow there with Mariner because she's not a bad or selfish leader. She doesn't even know what kind of leader she is. She's just decided to take up that mantle. Well, and because so much of that last episode is just a retread of the Wrath of Khan, um, it also loses um, any of the momentum. So we waste a lot of time uh, with whole scenes being recreated in the nebula from the Wrath of Khan and mm-hmm. uh, the Genesis device and blah, blah, blah. And it's all kind of, it's self-indulgent in the way that I think ill suits lower decks when lower decks is at its best it doesn't need to have all that kind of self-referentiality it can do it well as we've discussed across the course of this episode uh but something like that just feels really clunky and it's taking away from time where maybe a more kind of fruitful parallel between those two characters might have been you know like a better way to spend that time and i i i'm kind of i'm going to repeat something which i i i remain quite convinced of which is in many ways i think the wrath of Khan might be one of the worst things to ever happen to star trek uh, mm. because its influence is so overbearing on absolutely everything it's it's inescapable and i think at this point it's it's actively stifling uh creativity it, it definitely did over on uh, the most recent series of strange new worlds and i think the same thing is present here we don't need another damn retread of the of Mutara Nebula. We don't need the same points to be hit. We don't need the same beats to be seen again and again and again. Um, and I really feel it works to undermine um, the fin- finale. Because I, I kind of agree with what you said, John. I think episode nine is good. And I do really love the stuff with the Klingon. I think that's surprisingly effective. And it's a very unusual use of a Klingon as well, which I really approve of. Um, it, it's nice to see a, a Klingon character being treated in that way i really like the effectiveness of it i like the drama of it and i think the emotional core of that remains very very true particularly to 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 mariner but but yeah episode 10 just just deflates all of it in 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 some of the sort of least inspiring ways and it's it's kind of disappointing jg i i think that's so smart because i would not i would not trade wrath of khan for anything it's it's such a, a beautiful and important movie to me uh, but I think it's led to more bad Star Trek than anything else I could identify, including Gene Roddenberry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's quite the achievement. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, I think I am, like, when I am critical of episode nine, to be clear, I am very critical of just one scene, which is a, forgive this comparison, the very discovery like scene of Mariner talking about her entire backstory and having the therapy moment of this is why I feel this way. Here are five minutes on why I feel this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything else with the episode, I think, is great. I love how well the show, as we've discussed, like considers the other major species of Star Trek and putting them all together and having them play off each other. Klingons, um, Ferengi, Romulans, Orions. It's just so intelligent. And I do think that final monologue Mariner gives of reuniting them all together is the same way Boimler has his sort of, this is why he's a captain moment. That's Mariner's, this is why she'll probably be a captain moment. It's very well done. And it's also not highlighted. It's not like no one goes up to her afterwards and says, and this is why you're a great leader. It's all just there. We understand for ourselves 
the growth that has happened. And it's, yeah, it is just a really sweet moment at the end of a very, in a very fun episode. Like, I love all the stuff with the storm planet and the knife rain. And the Klingon is great, but so are, like I said, all the other aliens there. It's a great, like, look at how the show understands the world it's in so well. And in episode two, I love bringing in the Genesis device, but I completely agree with JG. It's like, we bring in the Genesis device, and then we bring in three other elements from Wrath of Khan. And it's just like, right. I feel like the much more fun way to do this show is you bring in something from the movies, something from TOS, something from TNG, and you combine it all into something new. So I, I don't know why they, in this case, fell down the rabbit hole of like, let's do what Picard season three did and, and Into Darkness did and once again remix these extremely familiar elements. So I think that covers it for our main characters. And now I think let's just use um, whatever time we want to spend on like popcorning around really things we love. Um, I want to shout out Moopsie, which I think is a perfect creation. <laughs> I, from the second episode, I have no blowns yet. I must flee. Um, it's just a little white little blob guy who follows people's arounds and drinks their bones. And I think the genius to Moopsie is yes, the cute looking critter that's actually dangerous has been done a million times before. Um, in every other scenario, you have the cute little critter turn evil and now look menacing and goofy and like doing a little evil grin the way that they moopsie is a threat while still being a doofy little guy who with a big smile on his face and no awareness of his actions is I think just comedy gold genius. Like that is the next like evolution of that joke that it needs to really stand out for me. Oh yeah. Moopsie is a great creation. It's just, just very, very simple. It slightly reminded me of, um, uh, the ping. I'm sorry to say, um, but um, we'll just gloss over that for the time being. And yeah, it's just like yeah, I just second all of that. Uh, I was I was a, a huge fan of bringing in this um, sort of famous prop. Like you can find supercuts on YouTube of it just showing up in every movie from you know Wrath of Khan to Airplane Two, uh, and the you know the, in this episode uh, you finally give it or this season you finally give it a name, which is, I guess, we're calling them Tucker Tubes after the character from Enterprise. Um, but I remember, you know, like the second episode of Lower Decks picking out that they'd taken the time to pull this prop, you know, out and design it and put it in the background. It just made me so happy the first time I saw it. And it's nice to see it get a spotlight. Oh, yeah. And I, and then very Lower Decks fashion, um, that's, it's like not really well explained what they do. They just kind of do with what they visually do and it, they just exist because they exist and you can improve them. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that they're the thing they're looking at in airplane two when mm -hmm. Kirk's sort of like checking on the equipment and the guy's telling him like that, like the sound effects are working fine. I'm, I'm butchering this right. scene, but yeah, it's, it's funny. You should, people should look it up. JG, did you want to go off about the Voyager-centric premiere of this season? You know, funnily enough, I actually don't. Um, it, 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 I know, it ought to be perfect for me, but I actually found it a bit um, pandering. 
And I'm I'm saying that as like the world's biggest Voyager fan. Like you know you know Kev, I adore Voyager. I've written about it. Um, it's it's absolutely my my thing. Um, but it, it there were some moments that landed in it, particularly um, I can't remember who it was that said it, but like they're checking on how um, Captain Janeway like dealt with the problem of of Tuvix, uh, and then they just quietly read the uh, <laughs> quietly read the pad, and then they go, "Wow, she does not." around um yeah <laughs> exactly that's a great moment but a lot of it is just kind of like the reference is the joke and that's not really quite my standard of uh, i don't know it, it, it felt i'm really always happy to see voyager get its get its love i'm happy to see that there was a lot of uh, a lot of genuine um affection for the show but the actual jokes were a bit kind of like i get that reference and yeah that's not I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm happy it's there, but you know, it, yeah, it it is what it is. The the Voyager Museum uh, episode is the same as the Tuvix episode, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought the Voyager Museum was like pretty whatever, right? It's like yeah, here's all these famous elements from Voyager. Cool. Um, <laughs> the Tuvix part of that makes it my favorite episode of Lower Decks ever. Uh, oh, and wow. I'm sorry, JG, I'm sure we'd be really good friends in real life, but like, <laughs> it's uh, it, like, I, I'm just going to go hard in the other direction here. Uh, I have had so many Tuvix conversations with so many Star Trek fans. Oh, yeah. I'm often really baffled at how fans sort of defend Janeway in this instance. It makes no sense to me. And I love that the show goes kind of hard in admitting that like, what Janeway did is like really messed up and then finds this like really clever inversion on like, well, what if Tuvix made a bunch of other Tuvixes and they staged a coup? To me, that's extremely funny. Like I was howling with laughter. Uh, you know, the way it wrapped up, I thought kind of was just a way to kick it all to the curb. It was like, whatever. I mean, I almost would have preferred if the, the Tuvixes had like, flown off and it became like a season thread or something yeah it is a very classic kind of ending where it's just like there's the morality is resolved by itself without the characters having to make a decision conveniently for them but yeah i i this was the one that required the most uh explaining of the other star trek fans in the room i can well but, imagine it did <laughs> yeah I, and i think and that's, did, did that's, a fight break out when they explained it to you no, no. <laughs> I think they're on your side of there, John, uh, as far as okay, Janeway's actions. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like it is, I think, one of the weaker episodes for me, just because even though it's like enjoy moves along at an enjoyable pace with like fun characters' reactions to things, I think I had more fun listening to them explain who all the Voyager holograms were and their really messed up history than actually watching those references play out. Um but yeah, it's uh, the, the the Irish bartender one just sounds like a very fascinating story. I can't wait to get to. Oh, it's so awful. <laughs> I mean, I, I, again, like there's no bigger Voyager fan than me. The, the oh my god, they're so bad. There's two uh, two episodes. They're both holodeck episodes, and they're both some of the worst television you will ever have to sit through. To be clear, can't wait. Uh, that that's a qualified can't wait. <laughs> discussing this on this podcast, of course. I I, I understand what you mean. Don't worry. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I think it's also a good observation that this one is aimed right down the middle at me. I fucking yeah. love it. But like, of all the stuff we saw this season, it gets that balance the least right. 
right? Right, like, exactly. Something that a hardcore would enjoy, but also a casual fan would understand and like. And the fact that it's the premiere may have been a mistake. I, I think one balance it gets right. Uh, we talked a lot about this episode already. I just want to end on a good note, though. Um, the other reference-heavy episode this season is probably the Frankie Planet one, which I was kept at the speed enough about like who Rom is and what the Frankie's deal is. But I mean, I didn't even need much. Like that one's so good at like again specificity, cop landlords, monuments of lost debt. Um, they're leader loves baseball and his wife is actually the good negotiator like all of these are just like good jokes on their own like even with the history behind them i think that's my favorite episode of the season is the ferengi planet one just because it you once you get the comedic conceit of these aliens it's just all flows so naturally and cleanly from there into a really really good um just worldview that they can poke fun at to their heart's content yeah, I, I literally loved this. Like as a DS9 fan, it was the coolest thing in the world. But one thing I, I might sort of uh, uh, add, Kev, is I think I think Rom is the great negotiator in that. I mean, him and Lita together. But like one of the things I love about it is it, it so develops the character from DS9 and gives me a sense of how this guy could have achieved these amazing reforms despite being like, Quark's idiot brother for most of, of DS9, which is the idea that like, he's actually internalized all this stuff. He's an amazing negotiator. And by playing the fool, he has managed to get his way time and time again until he's almost completely transformed Ferenginar. I just, I absolutely love it. And to me, it's kind of the opposite of when we saw Quark last season, where it's just like, oh, Quark's just still on DS9. Like, to me, if you're going to use a character that amazing and and there's been this break for so long, you should have something new to do with him or you should just leave him for someone else. And, like, I feel like the total opposite with Rom and Lita, where, like, it really brought their characters forward and gave a new thing for them to do in the future. Guess I agree with everything you said, but I agree with it. In the caveat that I've never liked Roma's character. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't really thrilled to see him back, which is a shame because I think the rest of the episode is great. Um, I do think it works incredibly well, but um, I've never cared about uh, Rom and I still don't. Uh, a quick note out that it note that at the end of the episode, when the Ferengi cops show up to pick up Boimler, they're, uh, they're using the, uh, ele- the Ferengi electric whips which we first saw in The Last Outpost, which was um, a big, big uh, inspiration for us in the plot of Star Trek Resurgence. Oh, nice. Nice, yeah, very cool. Uh, just just a few more things I loved this season. Um, binars, it was, to me, it was just so cool to see binars. You know, I know they're just a joke every time they show up, but like, it was, uh, it was really lovely. Um, and, uh, I also love that the conspiracy freak in the caves episode, which I really liked. Uh, mm-hmm. Weirdly, I, I had to look it up. All his conspiracies are about this random alien from uh, Star Trek, the animated series. Yeah, I, I was looking that up too. I was like, well, that's a really good deep cut as far as deep cuts are concerned, while also still being a really funny part of that episode. Uh, we didn't talk about the caves episode. I was very mixed on it. Um, it was just kind of, it really did feel like these are the leftover bins of stories we couldn't make work into a full-length episode. 
um, which means the season ends on a kind of down note with those last, with that and the finale being close together. But it's, I, mean, I don't know, even the worst Lower Decks is still a good time. Yeah, I appreciate what they were trying to do with Caves, but it, it, it felt a bit, um, I don't know, season 27 Treehouse of Horror, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like, it's like like yeah, I've, it's definitely a thing I've watched, but it didn't, it didn't, it didn't quite come together. I I, I appreciate they tried to shake up the format, and you know I'd rather that they tried to do that. You know, at least it had a little bit of ambition in it, but it didn't, it didn't really land. I think I think maybe that's closer to how I feel, JG. I think the the premise of this is so good, and the idea of a cave episode that is about cave episodes and like what they mean to Star Trek and how they're so often about taking two disparate characters with tension and making them sort of have an experience that bonds them, I think could have been really, really good. I mean, for one thing, I don't know why they send four characters instead of two, because cave episodes are always two characters. Um, And for another, I really think that it drags with this whole conspiracy character it just feels like really lazy, just like all yeah. the writers were reading Facebook and getting annoyed at their relatives. And they just wrote, you know, a screed into the first 15 pages of the script. Yeah, the conspiracy theory stuff was not great. But I do appreciate any show that's willing to do male pregnancy and just go there. So, <laughs> and props <laughs> to Rutherford for being very chill about it. it that, was, that was really funny. I think, I think Mike tweeted that he was unfamiliar with the trope of of quote, M-Preg, mm. before this episode aired, so I'm sure he got an education from the fans. Oh, yeah. Uh, I howled at the use of the uh, the first Federation vampires from the Corbinite maneuver in the bar. Oh, yes! Nine. I thought that a, was reference, a reference I totally got, because I've seen that episode, and having them that be an actual real version of that alien, is that was a really good inversion. Okay, so is that what we think is the first Federation is using a puppet that's based on a real alien that exists somewhere out in the galaxy and we finally met that alien? That does seem to be the implication, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love it. I also would love to see the first Federation come back, like a whole race of baby Clint Howards. Like, that would be so fun. I I genuinely thought when he showed up again that we were going to get um, adult Clint Howard voicing baby Clint Howard and... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, doing another scam but yeah it was what they landed on was also really good uh and then i just uh, the only other thing i have is i have one complaint which is uh in episode nine the idea that you can somehow get a starship low enough that you can jump on it from the top and pry the hull open with your bare hands it's like that hull has to survive like meteoroids at warp speed like i don't think that's gonna work bro right but I, I do want to still try to end on a good note because I did love this season. Um, I I just love seeing my girl Peanut Hamper again and my boy Agamus, uh, both two absolute stars of previous season's episodes and that whole subplot of him trying to track her down. And yeah, just just really funny stuff. The the, the light changing gag where it's, he has a blue light, that means he's good. It's all of that was really good. I'm a, I'm a big fan of both previous Peanut Hamper episodes almost a little annoyed she's actually reformed at the end of this one because i like her being a little a little jerk all the time but otherwise that was just a really good subplot i really loved 
I would I would love to see an episode of this show that used all of the Jeffrey Coombs characters mm-hmm. throughout all of Star Trek because there's so many and they're all so wonderful. Yeah, you Absolutely. can never go wrong with casting Jeffrey Coombs in anything. Okay, then. Well, I think in that case, we are kind of winding down in terms of our discussion. So we can probably probably rank this, this season. So, um, Kev, what would you like to give it? I think... I think I'm going to go for a full 9 out of 10. There are some weaker points we discussed, but what works, works so well. I had such a good time hanging out with these characters and watching them. Um, yeah, it's it was a really good season of television and what's been a really good year for television for me. Okay, excellent. Um, I think I'm going to go slightly lower. I think I'll go for 8 out of 10. Um, I do feel the season tailed off a bit towards the end, which is a little unfortunate. Um, but overall, it really feels like it's been a great, you know, 10 episodes to enjoy. It feels like the show is really properly back on its feet again uh, after after a weaker season three, which was still decent, but but still a bit weaker. And uh, yeah, here's, here's the season five. Um, John, what would you like to give it? You know, uh, it's interesting having talked it through with you guys. I think I see some flaws uh, a little more than when I was sort of just casually consuming it. But I think I'll still give it a nine out of 10, where I would really love to see this show go in the future is a bit more of those, you know, when Mike McCann pens the episode himself and he goes deep on sort of uh, the, the drama of Star Trek and, you know, the, the science fiction world building of Star Trek, you know, I think a similar episode is the one in season two where we're cutting between all the different lower decks on all the different ships. Um, I would I would love to see them give themselves permission to do more than one of those a season, because to me, that's oh, yeah. when the show is really singing. Absolutely. Excellent. Right. Well, then I think we can uh, wrap up our conversation on Lord X Season 4 there. Uh, now, um, Kevin and I, we're going to um, bow out of our recommendations uh, this week because we have been running for quite some time at this point. And well done to our listeners if you've got this far through. Um, but John, I believe that you've got something you would like to recommend. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm reading uh, Alan Moore's Supreme right now, which is uh, something that you know I'd had... Uh, heard was good for a very long time, but it's difficult to, to track down. Um, you know, it's this sort of in the midst of 90s comics uh, at Rob Liefeld's company when everything was like crazy and big guns, big hair, big muscles. Uh, Alan Moore got a hold of this, you know, violent Superman character that Rob had created uh, and was sort of like, what if I did just a very sweet, whimsical tribute to the Mort Weisinger era of, of Superman? really uh, dive into those uh, Silver Age stories and see what is still still good there, still worth holding up about comics. Um, and I just, I'm absolutely uh, charmed by it. It's extremely winsome. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Excellent. Um, I think we can probably also cover our plugs now. Uh, John, what would you like to plug? Oh, I'll plug uh, Star Trek Resurgence, which, uh, as I mentioned, is out on PC, uh, Xbox, and PlayStation. Um, also, if people want to find me on Twitter, I'm at, at John Callen. Um, I'm currently making uh, a sci-fi comedy web series of my own that's about artificial intelligence. Um, it's called The Box, and it's kind of like if uh, Ex Machina met weird science. Um, so, you know, stay tuned, follow my Twitter, and you'll probably see something like that from me, you know, uh, come next year. 
Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Great. Yeah, we are on Twitter at Talk Trek to You, Blue Sky Talking Trek to You. Um, I have a Twitter account at Max Rebo's Roadie, but I don't post there much. I instead post mostly on Blue Sky, also Max Rebo's Roadie. Uh, you can find, we would talk about where find podcasts. You can find more JG's writings at jgmacquarie.scott. And our other podcasts are JG co-hosts Beatles Stuffology, going through the Beatles discography ta- track by track. And I also co-host now Total Massacre, the action and sci-fi movie podcast that's more science fiction focused at the moment. Um, yeah, we've done some great episodes in October, November, and we're going to keep going with our new format and with me and Carly as the new co-hosts joining creator and current host Rowan Kaiser. So listen to that. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, well, uh, we can draw things down there. Uh, John, thank you very much for joining us on our walkthrough Lord X season four. Truly my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been an absolute blast. Well, that's it for Lower Decks. Uh, Next episode, we will return to our regularly scheduled visit to the original series. And with the sort of perfect timing that one may expect from this podcast, we have managed to spectacularly fail to time our Catspaw episode with Halloween. Uh, So we're out by a couple of months. Ah, well, what can you do? Anyway, next episode, it's Catspaw. And as always, we hope you're going to join it for it. But until then... Keep talking.